can't get to heaven. No, you can't get to heaven. In a mini skirt. In a mini skirt. Cause God don't want. God don't want. No little flirts. No little Welcome to You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt. My name is Jessica. And my name is Sarah. And if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Heaven in a Miniskirt, or you can visit our website at heaveninaminiskirt.com. And we just had the privilege of interviewing a astrophysicist. And it was amazing. Her name is Deborah Harsma. We've talked about her before, twice actually on our Creation versus Evolution episode, as well as Was Jesus an Alien episode. So Deborah is the president of BioLogos. She's an astronomer and a physicist. She is also a Christian. She wrote a book called Origins with her husband and fellow physicist, Lauren Harsma. She also used to serve as the professor and chair of the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Calvin University. She was really interesting to listen to. She completed her doctoral work in astrophysics at MIT. And so she's so incredibly smart. I couldn't believe that somebody who has a PhD from MIT was willing to talk to me. So that was wonderful. She was really fun to talk to. And so we had an interview with her. And if you need your faith in humanity restored, because I feel like, especially with the pandemic, people have been so polarized and so in their own echo chambers, your faith will be restored after listening to Deb. Your faith in humanity and maybe even your faith in God. Yeah, maybe. We're not here to deconvert her. Mine wasn't, but your, yours might be because she's she's very intelligent and she is super eloquent when she describes how she marries the two approaches between faith and science. If you want to believe in God and have faith, you can certainly do that if you listen to Deborah. And we do have some Christians that listen to our podcast and I really hope you guys enjoy this. Even if you're not Christian, it was just, it was really refreshing to hear from somebody who doesn't want to participate in the division and the polarization of politics and evangelicalism and fundamentalism and all of that. We are not going to shy away from having Christian guests on this podcast because we're also not interested in creating that divide. The kind of voices in general that we want to amplify are the people that want to have that respectful dialogue and the people that have a nuanced approach and don't make everything black and white. And I feel like Deb is one of those voices that we want to lift up because what she's saying is so important. And I think it's so important right now in, especially in the United States, the political climate and with the rise of Christian nationalism. And you're right, Sarah, like, I feel like our mission has been ever evolving since starting this podcast a few months ago. It's like right now, I just am so passionate about not creating more of the divide between people. And, but also me and you can laugh about our Christian experiences and some things about Christian culture. I'm happy to laugh and make light of it, but I'm not interested in telling people what to do with their faith. And also just not denying the existence of people all across the spectrum of beliefs in science, in religion. And something that Deborah does say in our interview is that people aren't just one thing. And we need to remember that 
life is not black and white. Even the most fundamentalist Christian that you know has multiple identities. Even the most fundamental atheist that you know has multiple identities. And the more we seek to understand each other and look at things from each other's perspective, or even just have conversations that are respectful, I feel like we learn so much. Yeah, it was... That was just a really fun hour of our time. I feel like I could have like, gosh, I could have picked her brain for like 20 more hours on such a wide variety of things. So I really hope you guys enjoy and we will see you in a couple of weeks with hopefully a fun episode and enjoy it. You little flirts. What our mission is, which is similar to the mission of BioLogos in a way, is kind of trying to find the common ground between Christians and atheists and also science and faith and things like that. And that's why we're so interested in your position on evolution and the mission of BioLogos. So the way I was introduced to you, Deb, was through the book, The Four Theories of Intelligent Design, Creation and Evolution, I think it's called. So I read the book and we did an episode for a podcast on that. What I loved about that is we try and give a balanced perspective. Like I was raised in the church and brought Jessica into the church with me. And then we both are no longer Christians, but we felt like there's a lot of rhetoric back and forth and there's such a middle ground and we want to be able to kind of show every different view. And so our podcast is it's not a deconversion podcast, but we kind of are looking into issues in Christianity through a lens of people who have deconstructed, but we're open to sharing all kinds of different points of view. And we felt like we had a lot in common with kind of your approach that you take as well. And we found it really fascinating and thought that listeners would be interested to hear how your experience as a scientist who has faith and the mission of BioLogos, which I think it's super important, especially now where there's all kinds of anti-science rhetoric within certain sects of Christianity and people seem to be so polarized and we want to just have those conversations and find the things we have in common, even if we don't necessarily agree a hundred percent. Yeah. 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 It seems we have a lot of commonality on that value of good dialogue and caring about thoughtful engagement and talking about different views. So, so thanks for having me on. I'm really glad to be talking with you. And and besides, this are fun. It, yeah. It fun, so like it should be a fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. I watched your keynote speaking spot at the BioLogos conference. It was like the first BioLogos conference since COVID or in person. And okay. I watched that and everything that you said, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I was enamored. It was so good. And I thought that it was so wonderful how you, well, I think it's just a lot of like having faith in science is so important. Before I'd heard of you, I'd heard of BioLogos because I followed Francis Collins for years. Cause even after deconstructing, he was really close with Christopher Hitchens, who I was a big fan of. I loved how they were able to have this really interesting and close friendship, even though they had very big differences. Yeah. That is such an interesting friendship between those two. Yeah. And for me, it's this amazing example of how Francis Collins, he doesn't just talk about being a Christian or is just Christian in his personal life. He it was this Christian faith that said, okay, I'm a physician. I'm going to go and visit the sick because Jesus said to do that. And he visited Christopher Hitchens and connected him with therapies and had a lot yes. of conversation with him. And it was just a really amazing example of faith lived out. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And we're really excited to be able to kind of pick your brain on a lot of these um, yeah. issues because 
I think it's so relevant to this generation and this time of division. And I think that we're so conscious of the division, especially when we do the podcast. When we started the podcast, I don't think that we quite knew exactly what we wanted to do. And now that we've gotten going, we've realized how big the division is and how much we just don't want to participate in that if possible. And you're our first Christian guest. Oh my. Oh, I'm so honored. Yes. (laughs) And our first scientist. All the things. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So we're hoping if you could just let the listeners know about your educational background, like Sarah and I already know, but why you studied your background. Sure. So in undergrad, I did a double major in physics and in music and piano performance. So I'm also a musician. Not that I've kept that up at that level, but I certainly enjoy it. And then for graduate school, I went to MIT and studied astrophysics and studied galaxy clusters. Wow. This picture is from the Hubble Space Telescope and was made just about five years ago. But I've studied galaxy clusters and something called gravitational lensing and things like that throughout my research. And then I was a professor at Calvin University in Michigan for 14 years. And I've been president of Biologos for the last 10 years. How did you get involved with Biologos? Like, how did that process begin? Oh, yeah. Well, Biologos was founded by Francis Collins in 2009. And we've already been talking about Francis Collins, but he led the Human Genome Project and he directed the National Institutes of Health. So he's like a world's top biologist. And then he wrote this book telling his story of his becoming a Christian while he was a medical resident. And that just really struck a chord with a lot of people. There were a lot of scientists who said, well, we know you're a great scientist, but why are you talking about religion? There were a lot of Christians who were like, oh, it's so great you've become a Christian. Why are you talking about evolution? So <laughs> he got a ton of questions about the book. So he founded Biologos and we launched in 2009. I got involved a few years later. My own background was from the other direction. I grew up in a Christian home in an evangelical church, which meant something different when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s than it means now. But I, so we can talk more about that if you want. And I always loved science, but I had to get my head around age of the earth, evolution, those kinds of issues, because those were And my childhood church was wonderful, but those were issues that were problematic. So yeah, how did I come to be at Biologos? So ever since I worked through those issues myself and came to see how I could see the Bible as God's authoritative word, I still hold to that. Um, And I could see how that could fit with science. And then I just became really passionate about wanting to share that with other people. So I've done a lot sharing that with speaking in churches, speaking with students, all sorts of things. And so when Biologos got going, it was natural to get involved and get to do that even more. That's an interesting point that you made about the evangelical church being different in the 70s. Are you able to expand on that? Mm -hmm. I don't, we're from Canada. There, There seems to be more of a separation between religion and politics. Like our politicians never mention religion, even if they are. Christians or ah. atheists, but that seems yeah. to be the hallmark in the United States. They always mention religion and oh, they always mention God, whether they're religious themselves or not. So, yeah. <laughs> and in a way that for me, as somebody who believes in God, that kind of cheapens it. They just say, oh, yeah, prayers and God bless you. And I'm like, well, what do you really mean that? I grew up in a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church. And I, it was a wonderful church. I, I learned that God loves me and I learned to love God. The evangelical then. See, going back further, in the early 1900s, there was a division in the church between the progressives who were viewing scripture as very much a human book, and these were a bunch of human people writing and kind of taking it apart. And then there were the more conservatives saying, no, this is the inspired word of God. 
and they ended up splitting and evolution ended up being a touch point for them, but there's a lot of others, fracture points. And then along came Billy Graham in like 40s and 50s mm-hmm. and said, okay, we don't have to bifurcate this way. It is possible to have a high view of scripture, but also have compassion for the poor to bring together a thoughtful engagement with faith and live it out. And like founded Christianity Today, and there were several other organizations founded then, and they kind of split. So that was called evangelical, was this moderate middle between the more progressives and then the fundamentalists. So I grew up in the world where evangelical, those were the thoughtful moderates, and fundamentalists, those were the more extreme, like, I'm not fundamentalist, I'm evangelical. Because it's like evangelical and fundamentalists are synonymous now. And now you hardly ever hear the word fundamentalist anymore. So in in my evangelical upbringing, it meant uh, we were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night every week, and also a huge emphasis on evangelism. And that wasn't, I don't know if unhealthy is the right word, but it wasn't very well balanced. It was all about, okay, we, we believe in God and in heaven, and the most important thing is to get people to heaven. The most important thing is to share the gospel because we've been forgiven. We want other people to be forgiven too. And so there was a lot of training on door-to-door evangelism, which is like about the worst <laughs> way to yeah. like, no. so, so anyway, evangelism is a whole topic, but evangelicalism was about living out our faith. There was very little politics in my church. That just wasn't a thing. So now in the last 20 some years, all those polls by Gallup and Pew and everything, they split, separate out people by religion and they have evangelicals and mainline. And sometimes you also get black Protestants, which are really interesting, not aligning with either of those groups. So the better ones at least separate out white evangelicals from black evangelicals, from Hispanics, from mainline white, and then you have atheists and agnostics and everyone else. And, and so then you get these headlines, evangelicals think such and such. How do those surveys decide who's an evangelical? They ask them to self-identify. That's not terribly rigorous. And what's the meaning of that too, depending on the age? And then the meaning of that has changed. And there are people who are like, well, I voted for Republicans, so therefore I am an evangelical. Maybe I should try out going to church. Or stats like 40% of self-described evangelicals have not been to church in a year. Oh, wow. Their views are not being formed by their church experience. They're being Mm -hmm. formed by a whole host of other things online, politics, et cetera. So the people in my world, we've just stopped using the word evangelical. People will say, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. We just, we need some other word to describe who we are because evangelicals come to mean a voting block. And that's not what it's about. It's really fascinating to hear that side of it because we we see people calling themselves like Jesus followers, Christ followers. And I'm always like, what does that even mean? But now I see if this is the reason I can understand why you wouldn't want to identify with this political sphere. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're getting at. It's very nuanced. It's very nuanced. Everyone wants to think that it's black and white, but nothing is. And, and it's all about getting to know where people really are at and what they're really thinking and not assume we know their views. And I will say one other thing about, I. so I have, I know a lot of churches that are conservative or friends and relatives who are quite conservative and politically, but would also consider themselves Christ followers and really live out their faith. And I've come to think of it, we can't put people into like single identifier categories either. It's more that everybody has multiple identities. Like I'm a wife, I'm a scientist, I'm a leader, I'm a Christian, and I'm also a voter and a consumer. When we're communicating at Biologus, we're trying to tap into people's faith identity 
and say, okay, remember the actual sermons you've heard and the scriptures you've read, what does that mean now? And not tap into other identities in that process. I think that's really important, especially where it seems like the political and religious identities so often in the United States in particular are interchangeable. Like you said, you have people that, okay, Republicans are evangelical Christians and then like moderates are going to be Democrats. And once people get so polarized, it's really hard to have any sort of dialogue. One thing Jessica and I were talking about yesterday when we were thinking about what kind of questions we wanted to ask, we kind of wanted to know your experience, like how has your message of the harmony between faith and science been received within different church circles? Have you had pushback, a lot of acceptance? I'm sure you've faced kind of a little bit of everything, but we'd love to hear more about (laughs) that experience. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. I've gotten everything. Oh, I can imagine. So one of the first things I learned, okay, when you're a scientist, and especially when you're thinking about taking science classes or teaching science, it's all about, well, like, if I can just explain the science more clearly and better than people have heard it before, then people will understand it. And when they, once they see the evidence, they'll accept it because that's what worked for me. Once I understood the argument and saw the evidence, I changed my mind and I, now I know this. And it turns out that net like never works. No. So I learned that through experience pretty early and realized if I was going to be talking with my fellow Christians, I needed to start by talking about faith because even in the nineties and in the aughts before things got even more polarized recently, even then most Christians didn't have an idea of what it meant to be a scientist. The only time they maybe heard about science was in church saying that science was some sort of challenge to faith. So they only heard of science in a negative sense. And so the idea that somebody could be a scientist and a Christian at the same time, like, whoa, that's weird. So I would always walk in and just start first with my faith. And when I taught at a Christian university, I would always start with my faith, start with devotions every day, really let people see why I love God and follow God and what that means to me. Then the second thing I let people see is my love for the natural world and how amazing it is and how I see it as God's creation. Now we're kind of like, okay, those are two things people can agree with. And now they feel like, okay, you're one of us. And then maybe they start to be interested to hear what I have to say. The next thing I do in talking with audiences that might be skeptical of science is, well, these days it's to kind of assure them you're not entirely wrong because there are a lot of loud voices that are atheistic or completely hating religion who will just hold up science as the enemy of religion. And we'll say things that are just really hurtful and not respectful. You get loud voices like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne and just going into it and saying that smart people can't believe in God. Smart people don't believe in God and stuff like that. And that's not fair to say to any group, right? Like, oh, well, your group can't be. There's not a lot of scientists from your group, so you must not be very smart. And it's just blatantly not true if we're going to test the IQ of like, there's intelligent people across every different type of belief system. If we're going to test the IQ of just the three of us, I think we know who who may be the one with the PhD (laughs) is the smartest one. Certain kinds of IQ. There's like, if we go with sports IQ. Anyway, so in Christian communities, when they talk about having concerns about science, and I was just talking with somebody yesterday, I was like, yeah sure about science. And he was being very friendly with me. And I think concerns arise from some of those things. So I assure audiences of that, okay, like I know what's making them worry. But then I talk about what science really is and how it's an investigation of creation, get them thinking about data and test tubes and computers and telescopes and get some different pictures in their heads. And then maybe 
we're getting ready to start talking about interpretation of Genesis. But it's those kinds of things help lay some groundwork and help forestall some of the negative knee-jerk reactions. It's really easy to get defensive. And I think one of the biggest issues, and you said this, is if you start to attack an entire group of people and saying that they're not intelligent because they don't believe in science, you're going to get nowhere. This is not the way to do it. You want a bunch of people to hate you. That's what you do. Right, exactly. And it's interesting because in the scientific community, there's quite a large group of scientists who realize that and who realize if we want public support from voters for scientific funding, we need to have some sort of civil engagement with this Mm -hmm. and have some way of reaching out. And so that's a really nice counterbalance. And a lot of those people, they genuinely are like, I have these religious people in my classroom and I don't know what how to reach them and what's going on. There's, there's all this resistance. And so there, there is quite a large block of scientists that I would say that were in that group. And then there's quite a large block who are just like fed up and these people don't trust scientists. How am I going to listen to them? Because Christians, as we know, also are defaults on the other side for saying blanket yeah. things about all the atheists and all the scientists. So it's like on both extremes, they're creating this false dichotomy. So people that are in the middle are kind of stuck feeling like they have to choose between faith and science. I remember when I was 18, I was working in a church in the UK. I took a gap year before university and the pastor there told me I was not allowed to read a book on theistic evolution. He didn't believe in it himself, but he had one in his office. So then I went and read Christopher Hitchens. And I'm not saying I don't know that that one thing would have kept me <laughs> as a Christian. <laughs> but like he he blatantly was like, you're not allowed to do that. Your faith isn't strong enough. And for me, I was like, well, if you can't expose yourself to the opposite view, then what is your faith even like? It's Is it grounded at all? And that's not a good thing to be teaching people to shelter themselves from the opposite view. Cause then we're just in our own echo chambers. Right. I agree. With you. <laughs> I know you have a lot to say. I can tell he's just bottling it and waiting. <laughs> yes. I, you say that very well. And it is so true. And so, you know what I advise pastors and youth pastors and parents, the kids are going to ask questions and you're going to be tempted to come up with, well, here's the right answer, or there's the wrong answer. Really easy. But what young people want is somebody to come alongside them in their questions. What if that pastor had said, you know, that's really interesting. Let's both read that book and discuss it together. Mm. It's an entirely different tone, you know, it's that the pastor is agreeing with that view, but like, let's engage it together. And what that means to a young person, if a Christian adult come alongside them in their questions is really huge. And I know a lot of ministers who take that approach. You know, what's interesting along these lines, when I was watching your talk, you were talking about how you didn't end up having a faith crisis for this kind of exact reason, how when you learned about evolution and you thought it made a lot of sense and you went home and talked to your father and he, what did he say? He said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. And that's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't even remember that anymore. (laughs) And it wasn't like some tactic he was using either. It was just a genuine, they had realized there were some issues that were at the core of our faith where we do know we need to be certain. And then there's other things a whole lot where we aren't going to always know. And it was a really useful lesson for me because I really wanted to make it black and white. I just wanted those clear lines, that definitive, because it feels safe in a lot of ways. You just want to know what's the right thing. I was very much that kid. So to have someone say, it's okay to not know, 
it really meant a lot. And it's okay if we disagree on certain things. That was a lesson a little further down the road. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In my experience, like I wonder if I had someone that wasn't so black and white and you're not allowed to read that and who didn't get so triggered by me asking questions. And so that's something that I always found a little difficult, especially being a woman in circles, I'm sure that you ran into this in being in, in the minority of astrophysicists, I assume. Oh, yeah. And in faith circles too. I'd be curious to hear like your experience as a woman. Yeah. That's, so that's interesting on both sides, women in faith and women in science. Yeah. So in faith, I had a pretty good experience. Now I've heard a lot of people who've had some really awful stories out there. Fortunately, I never experienced abuse or harassment. I got a lot of respect and support, actually. I think I was fortunate. Well, in as an adult, I found churches that really valued women leaders. My church right now has both men and women for elders and for pastors to see the gifts of my fellow women being valued and of men being valued and being able to work together on lots of things. It's a really rich working environment. So that's great. In science, wow, a first year graduate student, there were a lot of incoming physics graduate students at MIT, five, zero, 50, and three of them were women. Oh my gosh. And there was a woman straight from mainland China who didn't have good English yet. And there was a woman who, in our first conversation, told me that she had been camping that summer with her boyfriend doing LSD. Great. (laughs) You're like, where do I fit here? (laughs) Yeah. I had just come from a Baptist Christian college. So this was like, okay. That's a lot to take in right away. I get that. I'm like, this is not going to be my new best friend. And I I found InterVarsity and found a lot of friends, both men and women there. Do you know what that is, Jessica? No. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It is. So stop me if I drop me Christianese, please. I got it. I got, I'm the translator always. (laughs) So, so InterVarsity and there's a few other groups, they run clubs, Christian clubs at university. Like Youth for Christ when we were in high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, like Youth for Christ. So this is the college version. They have a graduate version too, which I was involved in. So, and those groups like churches, some can be great and some not so good, but I was in a good one and actually met my husband there. So I quickly learned to be in, in physics, just in my physics program, often one of the only women in the room, but usually there was one or two others. I was in a good research group. So I generally had a good experience. And as a professor, I felt very respected. I was chair of my department, able to be on some significant committees on campus. So I've had a good experience. And when the Me Too movement started with people sharing their stories, I'm like, oh my word, it's still that bad? I really thought that sort of thing didn't happen. And you know, me too. I, for someone who has experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, I was even shocked. And I was experiencing it at the time of Me Too, but I was like, that's crazy. I can't believe this is happening, even though it was happening to me. It's very, you don't expect it, I guess. It's, you don't expect it to be that rampant. Oh, I'm glad you had a positive experience though. Yeah, I really did. So yeah, so I'm grateful for that. Did you face like any challenges when you were trying to under, like, what were your biggest challenges when you were trying to reconcile evolution and Genesis? And how did you work through that? What's your understanding now? And how long did that reconciliation take? It took several years. Yeah. So, so we mentioned already that story where I was a high school student talking to my dad about it. And he said, I don't know. And I promptly put it on the shelf. I'm like, I don't have to deal with that challenging issue. And I moved (laughs) forward. I studied physics, studying plasma physics, which I won't bother to explain, but it didn't have anything to do with the age of the universe. So, so I was good to go. 
And then I became a graduate student and started getting interested in astrophysics. What is physics going on out in the universe? And there's some amazing physics going on in these galaxy clusters. The curvature of space, vast reams of highly charged particles giving off x-rays. There's really cool physics. And it's also billions of light years away. And that means we're talking about billions of years all of a sudden. And that was a bad word in my upbringing. So how do I work through that? Well, I mentioned InterVarsity already, and fortunately, I was at InterVarsity event, and they had several books sitting out. They brought in books by really good Christian authors, and here was a book by, it was an anthology of Christian astronomers, Christian geologists, and an Old Testament scholar. And here I could read from scientists who were believers, and for me, that was a really important bridge because I didn't have to worry that somehow their atheism was being trickled in, but I could also learn the science. And so at Biologos, we continue to elevate voices like that and feature scientists who are also Christians. It doesn't mean that scientists who aren't Christians, they're also doing great science. But if you're going to earn trust with the Christians in the audience, it really helps if it's coming from somebody they feel they can trust. So, so that was key for me. And then reading the Old Testament scholar, these are people who know ancient Hebrew and they know the ancient cultures in which the text of the Bible was written. That wasn't a big topic in my upbringing. And actually, I think a lot of scholarship has come in recent decades also, but it was eye-opening for me. Those ancient cultures, the Babylonians, the Hebrews, the Egyptians, they pictured the world as flat, okay? They didn't know it was round. And they pictured the sky as this solid dome with an ocean of water above it. And that's where the rain came okay? So now this is totally foreign. Like every third grader knows that the earth is round and they know about the water cycle, water evaporates, condenses. But that was how they pictured the world. And once you know that, then you read Genesis 1 again and you find, oh, on day two, so it's there's six days for people who don't know what's in Genesis 1. It's this story of the creation of everything happening over a period of six days. And on day one, it's light and dark. And on day two, it's separating the water so that there's water above, water below, and air in between. And then day three is separating out the water below so that there's dry land and water. So it's all these separating, putting things into order. And then days four, five, and six are filling that with stuff. So day four, you get the stars and the sun because that's the source of the light and the dark. And then day five, you get the fish and the birds because they fill the air and the water. And then on day six, you get the animals because they're filling the land and the people. So that was a quick outline of Genesis 1. Yeah. So on day two, this separate, this firmament with the water, blah, blah, blah. I never understood what that meant. That was never in a sermon. I had no idea what that meant till I read these Hebrew scholars who said, oh, yeah, all these ancient people, that's how they pictured the world. Like, wow, okay. So then what does that mean for us today? Well, one thing I had learned in my Christian upbringing that you get the best understanding of scripture if you first understand what it meant in the original context. Yeah. Because one of the traps that Christians tend to fall into is we read our Bibles and then we pull out this one verse and like, oh, this is a great verse and it applies to me. And here's how it went. Well, all of scripture is for us, but it was first written to somebody else. And if we really want to know what God's saying, we've got to know what it meant then. And so what this meant then is that God wasn't trying to fix their science. God was talking to these ancient peoples and he didn't say, oh, and by the way, the earth is round 
and there is no solid dome. And oh yeah, general relativity and quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. God could have explained a whole, all of science to them and would have completely lost them. And so instead God accommodated the message to their understanding, which means that probably those six days wasn't the point either. Laying it out in six days, that's a nice understandable chunk. Works great for you know remembering it, but it meant that there were bigger issues going on. And the bigger issue then was that all those other cultures, they thought there were lots of gods. There was a god of the sky and a god of the sea and a god of the land, mm. god of light, god of dark. And so that's the world that they're swimming in, the cultural world that these ancient peoples are thinking of. Then you read Genesis 20, you go, oh, where are all the gods? There's only one god. Oh my goodness, there's only one God left. In all those other stories, the humans were kind of this afterthought at the end, created to serve the gods. Whereas in Genesis 1, they're the culmination of the story and created to bear God's image. And they have this special honored place in creation. It's just, a, it's those kinds of differences then that seem to be the main point God had for them. And I decided that was the main point for me too. If God wasn't trying to put science into Genesis 1, I shouldn't be trying to get science out of Genesis 1. I should instead look at the main points there, which were that creation is good and there is one sovereign God and humans are have an important role to play in caring for that creation. It's interesting, the point that you made earlier, how you said that you were looking for the black and white answer. And I think that really is human nature. We want certainty. It feels so good. But what I really respect about you as a scientist and as a human is that you're okay with not knowing everything. And I can see with the story of Genesis that you're okay with the nuance of the reasons why Genesis was written the way that it was written. While you're here, I'm just so, so excited to ask some philosophy questions. I minored in philosophy in my undergrad and (laughs) I had this wonderful professor who was actually like an older creationist and didn't believe in evolution, but he taught a lot of courses and we had so many different views within the class. And this was as I was deconstructing and actually leaving my faith, but it was such a great forum because all of the dialogue was thoughtful and respectful. But one of the questions that came up, I did a course on if miracles are possible philosophically and scientifically. Ooh. And so with this, I'm curious to know your thoughts. The second law of thermodynamics saying that energy cannot be added or taken away and that it's a constant. How do you reconcile like divine intervention with thermodynamics? I don't know. I don't know if you have an answer. You'd probably be a millionaire if you did, but <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things. So there's the law of conservation of energy, which Mm -hmm. says that energy can't be added or removed mass energy. And then there's the law, second law of thermodynamics, which is about entropy and uh, disorder increasing in processes over time. So those are both really fundamental laws of physics that we see applying across the whole universe. So then how do those fit with miracles? And I do believe miracles happen and that the miracles in scripture happen. So the way I view it is I come from the starting point of God as creator. So if we grant that there is a person behind the universe and that person is sovereign, well, then you look at the universe and say, well, that person must also be pretty intelligent because there's this incredible mathematical rigor and beauty to it. So there's this intelligence behind it. And there's also this incredible consistency. Those laws are the same everywhere in the universe, but it's still the person doing those laws. So there's actually passages in scripture that talk about God pointing to the fixed laws of heaven and earth as a sign of God's faithfulness. So that consistency in my belief fits with the character of God, but it's still a person and a person can choose to act differently whenever they want. And so if God decides to do a miracle, he can do a miracle. 
And it is going to violate the laws of second law of thermodynamics and laws of conservation of energy. Because when we say law, it's a consistent pattern we've seen throughout the universe. It's not that it is, it rests within this larger context for me. And God can choose to do something different anytime and does at times. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I kind of want to segue a little bit because we do have a question that it doesn't really fit exactly what we're talking about, but I noticed that Biologos does curriculum for homeschooling. And I want, I was wondering about that and when did that start and why is that important? I know why it's important, but what is, why is that important for the mission at Biologos? (laughs) Why did we decide to do that? So we have a a curriculum called Integrate. So anybody can check it out at biologos.org slash integrate. And it is written for Christian school and for homeschool. And we have had it, we had a team writing it. We've had it reviewed by experts, but also piloted in a lot of homeschools and Christian schools and incorporated their feedback. So it's very easy to use for those environments. So if anybody out there has relatives in this world, it's something you can recommend. We decided to do it because we heard of a lot of people going through a faith crisis. Now we call it deconstructing, but it's that pattern's been around for couple decades and over science where science is like this focal point of people's crisis of faith. And so we thought, well, if we can reach people when they're still at home with their parents in their home churches and be getting a better message in those contexts and through their Christian schools, then they'll be better equipped to deal with nuance. So a big focus in the curriculum is not just here. It's very much not here's the answer. It's let's learn how to think about it. Here's a couple different views Christians hold. Do you understand what those views are? What kinds of questions do you have? How would you have a conversation with somebody of a different view? What are the underlying principles that Christians might agree on, even if we disagree on this? And there's a lot of that tone throughout the whole curriculum. And it doesn't shy away from the hard questions. So it's really seeking to come alongside young people and the questions that they're asking. And yeah, it's great. That's really fascinating because yeah. and this goes for Christians and non-Christians. I feel like there maybe isn't as many critical thinking skills being taught to children. And that's in public schools, at home schools, everywhere. And same with me. I think the only reason I learned that was in my undergrad was any kind of critical thinking or learning how to debate. And the fact that you're doing that is amazing. I wish that every curriculum had that, how to ask the hard questions and and giving the nuanced answers for science. But I think having some sort of philosophy or religious education class where you talk about different points of view, because it comes up and now even like as a parent myself, my daughter came home yesterday and was like, oh, some people are doing Ramadan. Can we do it? And it was like, so I was kind of explaining like there are different religions and different beliefs. And so I think, yeah, I think it's so valuable that people can have that exposure to different views. And I think that sometimes that's often missed in the super Christian homeschooling communities because it's kind of, you don't have that outside exposure to people who don't think exactly the same way because it's also curated by your parents and your church leaders. And often the motivation is to protect your children. Yeah. I don't doubt that it comes from like a pure sort of, you know, motive. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a good motive in a way, but it's also not a very far-sighted one because how will these children navigate the world once they leave that bubble? So they mm. need some equipping while in that bubble. So there is a broader range of Christians though who are doing homeschooling, especially after a uh, pandemic um, for reasons other than I need to make sure my child never hears about evolution. So we've even encountered some who are young earth creationists, don't agree with evolution, but are so committed to exposing children to different views that they want to use some of our curriculum. 
which is really cool. That is really cool. If anyone's listening and you homeschool your kids, please check them out. I'm wondering what advice do you have for Christians who are struggling to reconcile their faith with scientific knowledge or feel like they have to choose between science and faith? Do you have advice for anybody? That's a big question. Yeah. Well, huge question. So don't give up on either, I think is my first answer. It's when everybody on both sides says that Christianity and science can't go together, it's really easy to just accept that and say, well, I'm going to pick one or the other and please don't. It is possible for them to go together. It goes deeply back to the roots of the scientific revolution and the roots of Christian belief. They run together really deeply and well, even though in today's cultural world, they seem to end up on opposite sides of this polarized divide. So for me, I ended up, I dug deeper into the science and I dug deeper into the Bible when I encountered that tension. And eventually I saw how it could work together. So please keep digging in. It doesn't mean you have to set scripture aside or take it more lightly. It doesn't mean you have to ignore science. You can face both of them and see where they fit together. Second piece of advice is to check out BioLogos because that's what yes. we do. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I think it's such a great resource. Yeah. BioLogos.org yeah. and we're on social media. We have a podcast. We have the curriculum through any of our channels. You can see a whole community of people who loves talking about this and who is doing this. And a lot of stories of people who've come through their own struggles where they lost their faith or almost lost their faith over it. And a lot of different role models of how you can put it together. So yeah, encourage people to check it out. And what are, I know we've kind of talked about the extremes and I'm sure we could name atheists and young earth creationists that are extreme in creating these dichotomies for people. But what are some good authors that you know of or good speakers or scientists? Like I'm thinking on the non-Christian side, I know I like a lot of Sam Harris's approaches. I find that they are more respectful and nuanced. Do you have anyone on the faith side or on the non-Christian side that you would recommend? What are some, okay, there's some amazing scientists who are believers. We've mentioned Francis Collins, his book, The Language of God. You haven't read it? Yeah, I have. You guys, yeah. Also, (laughs) let's see. Who else tells it? There's a lot of great speakers and scientists. So uh, I was just listening to Rosalind Picard. She is an MIT professor studying artificial intelligence and very open about her faith. Mm. So very cool. There's Praveen Sethapathy. He's a geneticist at Cornell University. Just wonderful talking about his faith. There's, boy, so many names. Catherine Catherine Hayhoe is just wonderful. She's very open about her Christian faith and a climate scientist studying climate change and really presenting a message of hope. Her book is, man, I just really do have these at hand. (laughs) So she is a climate scientist case for hope and healing in a divided world. And she's, so she gives a real antidote to either just checking out that some conservatives, well, sorry, checking out happens at both ends. You have some people who are checking out because they don't believe it's real. And some people checking out because they believe it's all too real and think there's nothing we can do. And she's saying, Mm -hmm. no, hopeful action is possible. So, so those are a couple of names come to mind. Great. I will put those books in the show notes so that if anybody's interested. Yeah. And if I think of one or two others, I will. Yeah. Just send them off to us and we'll be happy to include them. Yeah. Cause there's just so much information out there, but it's been so lovely to have you on and I know we have six more minutes. I'm just curious your thoughts on the James Webb's telescope and if you have like what you're excited about, what I should be looking out for that's going to be coming out. Yes, please tell us about that. Yeah. So the James Webb Space Telescope launched in late 2021 and has been bringing in data since last summer. There's beautiful images that you can find online. 
and it's just been a delight to share those with people. What's exciting about it is that it's uh, the largest mirror that we have launched into space. And so it detects a lot of light, which allows it to see very faint objects and very distant objects that we could not see before. It also is looking at a different wavelength. So the Hubble Space Telescope is still working and still needed because it's at the visible wavelength of light that your eyes see in the Webb telescopes at infrared wavelengths, which is a bit longer wavelength of light. It's basically heat radiation. So the two of them together are now observing all sorts of systems. One exciting area is the very earliest galaxy, the first galaxies to form in the universe. So a galaxy contains hundreds of billions of stars. Our Milky Way is our own galaxy. And how those galaxies formed over time, we get to see in astronomy as you look up 1 billion light years out, you're seeing it galaxies as they were a billion years ago. You look 12 billion light years out, you're seeing how galaxies looked near the beginning of the universe and they looked smaller and bluer and different. But now with Webb, we're seeing galaxies even earlier and they're not all matching our current models, which is exciting because now we have new science to figure out how those first galaxies formed. So, So I'm really looking forward to some of the theoretical and computer simulation work to now catch up and match what we're seeing with this new data. So amazing. And, and and the picture of the galaxy clusters behind you, that was taken, you said, with the Hubble telescope? Was that yes. Or, yeah, okay. Yes. It's incredibly vast. But can I talk about that a little bit? I have yes. Because, yes so this is actually an interesting intersection with my faith as well, because I was studying all this as a student and a postdoc in the 90s, and Carl Sagan was doing a lot of work mm-hmm. then. It's a great science popularizer, but he had this whole thing of, he would say things like, we're just a tiny speck. The, the pale country. blue dot. The pale blue dot. We're in a lost, forgotten corner of the universe and stuff. That made it into popular culture. And even I picked it up like, wow, we are just so small and lost in the universe. And I'm studying all this kind of stuff. And then I made this connection finally to a passage that I had in the Bible that I'd known all my life, really, that says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, well, That's as fast as the universe is, as high as the heavens are above the earth. And it says, so great is God's love. And you kind of expect the next line to be, well, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's just greatness. He's just way beyond us, which is true. But it said, how great is God's love? Like, wow. And then the next line is, as far as the east is from the west. So that's, okay, east and west, you kind of think east coast, west coast, a four-hour flight. But actually, east and west, like that's from one end of the universe to the other. As far as the east is from the west. And it says, that's how great God's forgiveness is of our sins. So for me, looking at this universe through the eyes of my faith that I bring to it, I don't see it as telling us that we're insignificant or meaningless or lost and forgotten, but actually it's a sign of how vast God's love is for us and for me and how much I need God's forgiveness for the things that I do wrong, the times I mess up and how willing God is to forgive that. So Mm -hmm. so that's a place where... What I learned scientifically is actually informing my faith and vice versa. Yeah. And it's really beautiful too. You know, I really love that interpretation. And I really appreciate you sharing your perspective because I think a lot of the times people might think that you're unique, but like you said, there are so many scientists out there that have faith and there are so many people that are scientists that might not have faith that are still respectful of scientists that, that have those beliefs that it's not this all or nothing. Yep. Yeah. And we need to remember that as a society. And that goes in so many other facets. Like you said earlier, Deborah, no one is just one thing. We're all so many things. And we have a lot of characteristics and we don't need this divide. It's not productive and it's not necessary. Exactly. And in fact, I would say we need 
faith and science working hand in hand to address some of the challenges in our world. When you think about things like climate change or new medical technologies or even overcoming racial disparities in healthcare. If we could have science and positive religious forces working hand in hand to address those problems, that would be so much better than what we have now. Yeah. Thank you and so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. We This has been so fun. Yeah, this just, has been great. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. You're so much fun to talk to. And thank you for the approach you're taking, that you're really emphasizing dialogue and not about bashing one side or the other, but having these conversations. So thank you. Well, thank you. So <laughs> we <much>. try. <laughs> yeah. And you can, of course, plug my book too. Yes, you know please. About- Yes. Oh yeah. Is there, can you share your, Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so if you want to learn more about our creation, evolution, Genesis, my book is called origins and it's written for Christian audiences. And it's very gracious towards people who have a young earth creation perspective. And it walks people through, here's why a Christian might accept a great age for the universe and accept evolution. There's also videos that go with this and some online supplements. And I am on Instagram at Deb underscore Harsma. So you can follow me there. And you can also check out Biologos. We're at biologos.org is our website. And we have lots of articles. We have short videos. We're on YouTube, on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook. So you can follow us on any of the social medias. We also have a podcast called Language of God. So just search for Biologos on your podcast app. And if you subscribe to our email list, you can hear about events around the country and in your community. All right. Thank Thank you so much again. Really, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, have Have a wonderful rest of your day. Okay. You too. See you later. Bye. Well, that was our amazing interview with Deborah Harsma. We hope you guys enjoyed it. And we'll see you back here in a couple weeks. It's just going to be Sarah and I, I think. And what do you think that episode's going to be? Are we going to do part three of the Were They Gay series? Ooh, I think that would be Ooh. a good one just oh. to, to do next week. To really solidify our place in hell, yes. But <laughs> Well, if, like Deb said, God's love is as wide as the universe and his forgiveness is as vast, yeah. then maybe there is room for people with miniskirts in heaven. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe there... <laughs> maybe you can get to heaven in a miniskirt. Oh my God, did we just come full circle? Is the podcast over? Are we done? <laughs> you can get it's to heaven. It's not over yet. That's it. We figured it out. No, we still got a lot of good things lined up. But according to Deb, you can get to heaven in a miniskirt. Yes. She did, that's not a direct quote. Not a, but, but she insinuated. No. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. No, you can.